On May 29, 1957, a banner headline on the front page of the Cleveland Plain Dealer announced that the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants had been given approval by the National League to relocate to California. The league also denied a rumor that the Cincinnati Redlegs were relocating to New York. CBS television featured Jimmy Dean, Captain Kangaroo, Gary Moore, and Arthur Godfrey in the morning. At night, Godfrey was back on again, followed by The Millionaire, I've Got a Secret, and the 20th Century Fox Hour, presenting William Bendix, Gene Barry, and Laurie Nelson in Threat to a Happy Ending. And at noon, the film A Face in the Crowd, starring Andy Griffith, Patricia Neal, Anthony Franciosa, and Walter Matthau, made its Cleveland premiere at the Allen Theater on Euclid Avenue. Over the next decade, Matthau succeeded on the Broadway stage with a Tony Award nomination for Best Featured Actor for Once More with Feeling in 1959 and a win for A Shot in the Dark in 1962. His second Tony Award was for Best Actor, playing Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple in 1965. His movie career continued to build, with supporting roles as dramatic characters in films like Failsafe, Lonely Are the Brave, and Charade, before his Academy Award-winning comic turn as Whiplash Willie Gingrich in Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie, and his reprisal of Oscar Madison in the film version of The Odd Couple. And he was still just getting started. Where Have You Gone, Walter Matthau? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Walter Matthau was born October 1st, 1920. He died on July 1st, 2000. If we extend the middle of the 20th century 15 years in either direction, from 1935 to 1966, we incorporate some of Matthau's best films, including his Oscar-winning performance in The Fortune Cookie, before he ever made a film of a Neil Simon script. He'd already been on Broadway numerous times, starting in 1948 and peaking with Simon's The Odd Couple in 1965. Matthau's career surged with his Oscar win and his multiple starring roles in the stories of Neil Simon. In addition to The Odd Couple on stage and screen, Matthau appeared in roles written by Simon for Plaza Suite, The Sunshine Boys, California Suite, I Ought to Be in Pictures, and The Odd Couple too. One of Matthau's best-known roles was as the Little League manager Morris Buttermaker in The Bad News Bears, a staple of off-season programming on the MLB Network. And of course, he's covering the Mets as Oscar Madison when Bill Mazeroski of the Pittsburgh Pirates hits into a triple play in the film version of The Odd Couple. 
his IMDb biography, says he lost $183,000 betting on spring training baseball games. In the early 1970s, he turned back to dramas such as The Taking of Pelham 123 and Charlie Verrick. In Charlie Verrick, Matthau appears with his son Charlie. They're also together in The Bad News Bears and House Calls. Charlie was an assistant to the producers for his father's 1985 film Movers and Shakers and later directed him in The Grass Harp from 1995 and The Marriage Fool from 1998. Matthau played the lead in the 1981 film version of First Monday in October, a role originated on the Broadway stage by Henry Fonda, with a screenplay by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee based on their stage play. According to IMDb, Matthau had 107 film and television credits from the first, the TV series The Big Story in 1950, to the last, in Hanging Up in 2000. I look at many of those performances again and again, but three of them have particularly special meaning to me. The first two, Whiplash Willie Gingrich and Oscar Madison, are cut from some of the same cloth. They're both slobs. In many ways, most of them wrong. Willie Gingrich's office in Cleveland's Terminal Tower is the office I always wanted to have. Gingrich and Madison are both quick on their feet with a quip or a comeback. The fortune cookie is set in Cleveland, Ohio. It has great shots of Cleveland Municipal Stadium, a place gone but not forgotten. When I was growing up, the two films made in Cleveland were The Fortune Cookie and The Kid from Cleveland, and both were special to me in part for that reason. I can't remember what happened yesterday, but I can probably describe the film version of The Odd Couple shot by shot from start to finish with Neil Hefty's music playing away in my head. Then there's Joe Mulholland, the film executive in Charles Grodin's film Movers and Shakers. He's a nice guy, early 60s, trying to make something that's about something, just like me. Please listen on. I hope you'll find Where Have You Gone, Walter Matthau, is something that is about something. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. Walter Matthau left us a great legacy of work in film, on television, and on the stage. Most of the film work has been preserved, and many of Walter Matthau's television appearances can be seen from various sources. But not so much, if at all, the stage work. Matthau's first credit in the Internet Broadway database is for Anne of a Thousand Days, from December 8, 1948 to October 8, 1949. He played a servant and understudied many other parts. He performed in The Liar, and then, starting as an understudy again before moving up to a featured role, in Season in the Sun, 
directed by Burgess Meredith from September 1950 to August 1951. Then came Twilight Walk. It lasted just eight performances from September 24 to September 29 in 1951, closing just in time for the National League playoff between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants and Bobby Thompson's shot heard round the world. Mathau worked steadily on Broadway throughout the 1950s and into the early 1960s. He appeared as Nathan Detroit in a 15-performance run of Guys and Dolls for the City Center Light Opera Company. After Guys and Dolls, Mathau made his first two films, The Kentuckian and The Indian Fighter. His return to Broadway landed Mathau in his best show yet, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. It opened at the Belasco Theater on October 13, 1955. Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter ran 444 performances. Mathau played the playwright Michael Freeman. About three years later, on October 21, 1958, Once More with Feeling, written by Harry Kernitz, opened on Broadway with Mathau billed third after Joseph Cotton and Arlene Francis. He played Maxwell Archer, described in the notes for Act 1, Scene 1, as Maxwell Archer of Maxwell Archer Incorporated, a man of about 50, quite well-dressed. He is an empresario, and the calling has left marks on him in the form of nervous movements and associated twitches. Mathau played the part well enough to earn a 1959 Tony Award nomination for Best Featured Actor. The film role of Maxwell Archer went to Gregory Ratoff. He was well-suited to the role, being a producer and director himself in addition to being an actor. Ratoff was also well-suited to the role, having played the producer Max Fabian in 1950's All About Eve. Sadly, Ratoff died of leukemia on December 14, 1960, not many months after the premiere of the film version of Once More with Feeling. Flash forward to the fall of 1961. Mathau took on another role written by Kernitz. This one, Benjamin Bovers, in A Shot in the Dark. He doesn't enter the play until Act 2. He is described as supremely elegant, quite handsome, very sure of himself. A Shot in the Dark brought Mathau another Tony Award nomination and this time he walked away with the prize for 1962's Best Featured Actor. When A Shot in the Dark was adapted for the big screen, Mathau was once again passed over. George Sanders got the role in the film, with the name changed to Benjamin Ballon. The film version of A Shot in the Dark bears little resemblance to the stage play as written by Kernitz. In the hands of writer-director Blake Edwards and his writing partner William Peter Blatty, the film version of A Shot in the Dark turned the character of Paul Svenier, originated on Broadway by William Shatner, into Inspector Jacques Clouseau, as played by Peter Sellers. Sellers, who first played Clouseau in The Pink Panther in 1963, went on to play the character three more times before his death in 1980 and once afterward. Twilight Walk, Once More with Feeling, and A Shot in the Dark are all available in printed form. Twilight Walk was written by A.B. Schifrin in 1949 under the title Love, Hate, Murder. The author's notes in the print version of the play reveal that it was produced by Margot Jones in Dallas under the title The Willow Tree. 
Specifically, it was first produced by Jones at her Theater 51 in Dallas on January 8, 1951. From 1950 to 1965, Mathau was frequently seen on television. Often it was on the anthology shows such as Lux Video Theater, the Philco Television Playhouse, and Goodyear Playhouse. He was the star of Tallahassee 7000 as Special Agent Lex Rogers. It was a syndicated series filmed in Florida that lasted but one season of 26 episodes. He appeared in one episode of Route 66, two episodes of Naked City, and four episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now, regarding Mathau's early films, I consulted what I consider as good a source as any, Leonard Maltin's classic movie guide, second edition, from the silent era through 1965. A Face in the Crowd, Charade, and Failsafe, three of my favorite films, get the best reviews with three and a half stars. Bigger Than Life, The Indian Fighter, Slaughter on 10th Avenue, Lonely Are the Brave, another of my favorites, and Mirage all get three stars from the Malton book. Regarding Mirage, the review says, Mathau steals film as easygoing private eye. Ride a Crooked Trail only gets two and a half stars, but the review says worth watching for Mathau's zesty performance as a bombastic alcoholic judge. Somewhere around the time of the making of Lonely Are the Brave, Mathau found time to father his son, Charles, born on December 10, 1962. In 1965, coming off the films Charade, Ensign Pulver, Failsafe, and Goodbye Charlie, Mathau was back on the stage at the Plymouth Theater on March 10, 1965 as Oscar Madison in the Broadway premiere of The Odd Couple. The play, co-starring Art Carney as Felix Unger, ran for 964 performances. It earned Mathau his second Tony Award, this time for Best Actor. And when it came time for the film version of The Odd Couple, there was no question that Mathau would play Oscar Madison. By that time, he was an Oscar-winning actor. It's almost as though Mathau had two lives, one before he won the Oscar and one after. His entire life is captured in the biography Mathau, A Life. In a moment, I'll be joined by the book's co-author, Audrey Kupferberg, when Where Have You Gone, Walter Mathau continues. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode.
Audrey Kupferberg is a film historian and archivist. She has produced three short films. She has lectured on film history at SUNY Albany, one of the State University of New York schools. Her commentaries about film and television can be heard on WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. And she teamed with her late husband, Rob Edelman, to write Meet the Mertzes, a dual biography of Vivian Vance and William Frawley, Angela Lansbury, A Life on Stage and Screen, and Mathau, A Life. Audrey, welcome to Where Have You Gone, Walter Mathau. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. It's been about 20 years since Math Out A Life was published in 2002. How and why did you and Rob choose to write a biography of Walter Matthau? Well, it was kind of an indirect decision. We had enjoyed writing the Lansbury book, the, the Mertz's book, you know, all of our projects. We had a really good time doing them. And at the same time, we were making a living partly doing that. So uh, we were looking for the next project. A woman, an editor at a publishing house, contacted us about writing a biography of George C. Scott, who had just died in 1999. And uh, that sounded like a wonderful next project for us. So we, we started thinking in more detail about the career and the personality of George C. Scott. And then uh, as the paperwork was making its way, you know, the contracts making its way through the publisher, Matthau died. And one morning we just looked at each other and said, forget George C. Scott. We have got to write a biography of Walter Matthau. And that was for several reasons. Uh, Walter Matthau really shared uh, a Jewish culture with Rob and me. And Rob, in particular, felt close to Matthau because Rob grew up in Brooklyn under challenging circumstances, just not quite as bad as Matthau. Uh, and anyway, Matthau could have been an uncle to Rob. That's how close they were in, in culture, in uh, not so much religion, but the culture of religion and immigrants. So... We just dropped George C. Scott and went directly to contracts on Walter Matthau. Wow. And that's how it began. Were there specific Matthau performances that resonated with either one of you? Oh, sure. I'm sure that Rob's were a little different from mine, uh, but both of us really loved the odd couple. And, right. uh, I particularly love the Grumpy Old Man, Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men series. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always had a specialty with uh, vaudeville, so The Sunshine Boys uh, was was a film that meant a lot to me. Uh, we were fans, just like hundreds of thousands of other Americans of all the films that he made films like House Calls and and the dramas too. Mm -hmm. Charlie Varick uh, yeah. is a very good film. Uh, so yeah, he was just a, a popular actor to us, mm -hmm. and uh, 
so funny, really. His, his comedies, The Fortune Cookie, you know, uh, right. very uh, a unique style of comedy. And so we really uh, just enjoyed his work. And I, w- I want to talk to you about his comedy work versus his dramatic work. But before that, let me ask you a little bit about how you tackled the writing. Did you do everything together? Did you separate it up that you would do certain portions and he would do certain portions? How did that work? When you share your lives 24 hours a day, you know, you, you can't exactly go off and do things separately. So, right. so I would say that most, most of the book was done in, in uh, collaboration. Uh, we had a, a very good time separating who would, uh, who would interview whom. Uh, we found out that women would talk to another woman more openly. Oh. And there were men who would talk in very great detail to Rob. So, so the gender thing was one way of splitting up the interviews. Uh, as far as the writing of the book, I always felt, I'm sure Rob did too, that Rob was the better writer of the two of us. So uh, I would write part of a chapter or a chapter, and I, I'd bring it into his office, and I'd say, what do you think about this? And he would say, why don't we expand the section about such and such? So we kind of work it through together to a satisfactory end. But he, he really, he was the... He was the easier writer, you know. He would get up six, seven in the morning with such enthusiasm for the writing that he would start. He'd go downstairs and start working at the computer, and uh, you know it would just pour out of him. Uh, where it was a little more stilted for me, but we got through it. You mentioned interviews, and you did many interviews for the book. When you got started, did you feel like there was a certain person or persons that you had to get their cooperation to do the book? No, I never feel that way about a project, no. I think that as a researcher, a professional film and theater and television researcher, uh, no one interview will make or break a book. If the research was shut off to us, if say if Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library said, we don't want you around, you cannot use any of our assets, then I would say, wow, maybe we should forget about the book. But no one voice and no one approval mm-hmm. uh, would make or break a book. In, in the case of Mathau, of course we wanted to work with Carol, his uh, widow. Right. Uh, we were very fortunate in having the cooperation of both his sons, particularly Charlie, who had worked very closely with him, and they lived together into adulthood, and they were inseparable in many ways. So having Charlie's cooperation was major uh, for the tone of the book. And you would think that having his very enthusiastic cooperation, we would also have obtained his mother's consent and his mother's cooperation. No. Right. Wow. No. She she held off. And I 
I believe the reason was that she was planning to do her own book, a memoir. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is a reasonable reason not to work with biographers. But that never, never came to fruition. And, uh, it, you know, we were actually in the Mathau home interviewing Charlie one day out in California mm-hmm. when Carol was within hearing distance. She was in another room in the house. Mm-hmm. And she would not come forward. Charlie even asked her to. Mm. She would not come forward and speak to us. Uh, but then when the book came out and she read the book, in fact, Charlie read it to her, uh, she told Charlie to tell us that she really liked the book and she was very glad that it existed. And she died just a couple years after he did. So the memoir never got done. But anyway, we, we felt good that she had read the book and, and felt good about it. We didn't need her approval, but it was nice that she respected our work. Well, and that leads to a question, uh, because you, you call the book Math Our Life, and uh, it, it seems to me that he almost had two lives, the life up to the end of his first marriage, and the life beginning with and, you know, going forward after he married Carol. Do you think there's something to that? Oh, I agree. And I'm sure Rob would agree, too. Uh, Yes, yes. You know, his whole beginning years as really kind of a poor immigrant kid living in Brooklyn, having next to nothing, struggling day by day, being a tall, gawky Kid, I think he's a nice-looking kid, but but he was apparently really kind of an awkward, tall, skinny kid. You know, this this whole thing led to a marriage with the first wife, Jerry. That was uh, I don't know. It didn't seem like a great love match. It was just something to get him a step away from a mother that caused a lot of grief in his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, the father was not on the scene, and he had a half brother. Yeah, it was uh, getting him one step out of a mess. And the two children—I don't, I don't know. You know, I got the idea that his first marriage was uh, a failure in more than one way. Uh, mm. It wasn't what he really wanted, and I have a feeling that his first wife was disappointed as well and the children talked about him to us the the daughter didn't speak with us mm-hmm. uh, but the david the son his older son uh spoke with us and the portrait of Matthau from david is very very different from the way charlie spoke of his father mm-hmm. to us David kind of told anecdotes in, in a rather straightforward way, whereas Charlie, you felt the love when you heard Charlie talking about his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the the relationship between Charlie and, and Walter, you can't pick a favorite child, but clearly there was a closeness with Charlie that maybe was not there with the other kids. Yeah, you say you say you can't pick a favorite child, and, and right away I'm thinking, gee, I think he did. You know? Okay. 
right? Yeah, yeah. You could talk in terms of Jenny and, and David from the first marriage, in terms of he loved them. I'm sure he had mm-hmm. a father's love for them. But with Charlie, it was overboard. It was doting. It was adoring. Uh, there was a, an inseparable quality between the two of them that lasted till he died. When Charlie must have been about forty when he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, different, very different with the first marriage and the second marriage. At the time of the first marriage, it seems like Walter Matthau's career was on a, a certain track. He was a, a character actor. He did a lot of uh, dramas. He did stage. He did television. About the stage work, because it, it seems to me that was not captured on audio recordings, film, video, anything like that. Uh, what resources did you use to talk about his stage work? Well, there are two approaches. You have to remember that this wasn't the first time Rob and I approached uh, research of uh, topics that we didn't experience ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matthau's stage career pretty much ended with The Odd Couple on Broadway, which ended around 1965. Um, Rob and I were 16 years old when his stage career ended, so we didn't have a personal view of of his stage work. But as professional researchers, there are two ways of approaching. One is to get the facts, and for that, you just have to go to published resources of the time, theater reviews, uh, theater books of the period, uh, you know, whatever whatever written sources there were for detail, for color. You want to get the interviews. You want to talk to people who either saw him on stage or worked with him on stage. And uh, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the odd couple. He did the odd couple on stage. Mm-hmm. He did the fortune cookie, which got him the uh, Oscar. And which and then, really made him a star. Yeah. Yes. And what about those two projects, one after the other, the play of the odd couple, the film, the fortune cookie, and then the film of the odd couple? It seems mm-hmm. like it took his career in an entirely different uh, direction from where it had been going. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's almost a parallel to his two marriages. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one is rather workaday mundane. And then the second one is starstruck, you know. The fortune cookie came out in 1966. He started working on it before, pretty, you know, months before. Uh, you may have heard the story that uh, he had a heart attack during right. the fortune cookie. And mm-hmm. Billy Wilder, the very famous director, Billy Wilder, uh, rather than replacing Matthau, was so impressed with Matthau's performance that he said, we're shutting down, and when Matthau feels well again, we'll open up again and we'll finish the film. So it took much longer than usual, came out in 66. Um, if, if he hadn't done the fortune cookie, he may not have obtained the role of Oscar Madison uh-huh. in the movie version of The Odd Couple, in, uh-huh. which came out in 68. Uh, there, there are so many 
Hollywood actors that could have played Oscar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Hollywood, by tradition, has not been kind to the stage actors who uh, originated roles. I mean, like when Robert Preston starred in The Music Man, and mm-hmm. the whole image of Robert Preston is, was, is Harold Hill, yeah? Mm-hmm. But uh, he almost didn't get that part in the movie, uh, Cary Grant at one point was approached to play Harold Hill. Can you imagine Cary Grant as Harold I'd, Hill? I'd rather not. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to imagine anybody other than Robert Preston uh, That's right. playing that role in, in the in the film. Um, well, Cary Grant told the told the studio people. He said, "Not only do I not want to take the role of Harold Hill, I won't <laughs> even go to see the movie unless Robert Preston plays the part." And case in point, on stage, it was Art Carney as Felix. Mm-hmm. And in the film, they didn't go with Art Carney. They went with Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Bigger bigger box office name. Right. Carney was small screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Are there hidden gems that come to your mind that you think people ought to know that maybe don't show up as much on television? Turner Classic Films or the other uh, movie channels? Uh Hidden gems. Well, I think one of them might be the grass harp, mm-hmm. uh, which is not so much special because of Matthau's acting performance, although it's, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful performance. Uh, it's just an opportunity to see Matthau in a soft, beautiful, lyrical movie. And Charlie directed it which right. is so nice, you know. And Charlie plays a couple cameos in it, a couple scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the grass harp is one that people might want to catch up on if they haven't uh, seen it. And uh, it's it's based on Truman Capote and has an all-star cast, including Jack Lemmon. Uh, right. But they don't share scenes. Uh, there's there's a, a film called House Calls, Oh yeah, and that's a um, co-starring uh, Glenda Jackson mm-hmm. and Matthau, and they're they're like one of these couples that you can never imagine could be a couple, and yet mm-hmm. when you see them as a couple, you say, "I believe it." It's a very strange romance, <laughs> uh, again a comedy, and and it's interesting because Art Carney plays a role in it. Uh, right, but a minor role. Yeah, House Calls is one that that I think deserves a little more attention. There's one film that I can't figure out at all, and that is A New Leaf. Uh, a New Leaf came out in 1971, mm-hmm. written and directed by Elaine May, when mm-hmm. there were not very many women directing, and she co-stars in it with Matthau. It's the strangest film. It's about two middle-aged people, both grew up extremely rich, and and if you can use the word waspish, uh, and then the, he needs money, so he looks to marry her for her money. He's a rich kid who has no money left. He spent it all. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the role was supposed to go to Christopher Plummer. Mm. Now, it wound up 
with Walter Matthau. How can you compare, <laughs> you know, Christopher Plummer and Walter Matthau? Where does that come from? Uh, Elaine May is born to play the role that she wrote for herself in this film. But Matthau, forget it. He just doesn't fit. It's such a, a miscasting. And so I think the only way that he felt he could get away with it, and I, I'm just imagining this, I don't really know for sure, mm-hmm. is I'm told that he used Charlie Chaplin in Monsieur Verdoux mm-hmm. as his inspiration for the way he approached the role. And when I think about it, in A New Leaf, Walter Matthau is not playing a realistic character. He's playing uh, a, like a mythical, like a Charlie Chaplin. You know, Chaplin, if you saw Charlie Chaplin walking down the street towards you, you would say, oh, my God, that that man is not of the real world. You know, him with his mm-hmm. little cane and, and doing his funny little walk. Uh, right. he's, he's somewhere with the fairies, you know. He, he's just... <laughs> He's not of the real world. And that's the way Matthau plays in A New Leaf. Not like Charlie Chaplin, but in the mode of Charlie Chaplin. And he was a Chaplin fan. I know mm-hmm. that. And you, you also mentioned the, well, I'll call the the grumpy movies, grumpy old men and, and grumpier old men. That yeah. really kind of gave him a boost later in his career that not many actors get. Do you see that as uh, exposing him to kind of a a new generation of film goers? I suppose so. I mean, look, he did Dennis the Menace, you know. Right. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I I mean, how many actors who looked that old were playing lead roles? The same with Jack Lemmon, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were both very fortunate to be working that late in life. George Burns and the Sunshine Boys. Right. Uh, these these were the very few older actors. Although George Burns is still another generation ahead of Lemon and and Matthau. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, they were they were among the few who uh, Hollywood was banking on in those days. I love those grumpy old men two films. I wish there had yeah. been a third. Um, yeah. It's a case where a sequel is, to me, just as funny, just as rich as the first. And the way they allowed both Lemon and Athal, the way they allowed themselves to look foolish, you got to shake their hands for that, you know, to see these two guys just laying it all out in these films. It's hysterical, and it it took a lot of nerve, I think. Sometimes the sequels work, and, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the the Odd Couple, too, which, you know, it's it's Mm. really hard to follow the Odd Couple. Oh, my God, bad film. Did not work as well. No, that's a terrible film, I Mm. have to say. Uh, I saw it again recently, Mm -hmm. and I just felt bad about the whole thing. Uh, yeah. In the book, and you've mentioned that you kind of go where the facts take you, regardless of any particular people that you're able to talk to or not to, to talk to. Walter Matthau's gambling is well known. How did you decide how much attention to give to that aspect of his life? Well, it was a major part of his life, so we knew we would have to deal with it and put out whatever we felt 
was credible. That's the thing with a lot of Matthau's, a lot of the aspects of Matthau's life. Credibility is in question because he fabricated a yes. lot of stories during his lifetime. And a lot of the fabrications were told repeatedly. You know, you tell a story long, you know, over and over, and it becomes truth. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had to be very careful, not only with the gambling, but with other aspects of his life. There were things that he had told Charlie that Charlie totally believed that we found as we researched were just made up. Wow. And, and Charlie couldn't believe it, but yeah, he, he faced the facts that father had a good imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did deal with the gambling, but tried to print the stories that made some sense. There's a good bit of baseball in the film version of The Odd Couple. There's the famous scene at the Shea Stadium where Mathau plays the manager of the Little League team in uh, the Bad News Bears. So much of Rob's life was baseball and film. Did that add to his desire to do this book? Of course. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Period. Of course. Uh, yeah, Rob was passionate about film and passionate about baseball. And to be able to combine the two passions into one project was Rob's idea of heavenly. It wasn't the first time that Rob was able to do that. Rob did many articles, as you know, about mm -hmm. baseball players involved in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. uh, and he did several books uh, where right. he was able to combine performance with baseball. That was wonderful for him. You know, when I met Rob, when I met him, I didn't care about baseball at all. I did not like it, but I didn't know mm -hmm. much about it. Just didn't care. And he really opened me up to the joys. I never became the passionate baseball fan that he did, but I used to love going to games with him because I would look into his face and it would make me happy <laughs> to see his smile Yep. Well, in the stadium. I yeah, you know? I have a very fond memory of being with Rob at the Nine Conference, which is an annual baseball conference, and we went to a college baseball game. It was an Arizona State game, and we had a wonderful time. So it didn't have to be major league. It didn't have to be professional. Put us at a ball game, and we're right where we wanted to be. Oh, uh, I know. I know. She said it wasn't baseball. Was it film that brought you guys together, or was that uh, incidental? No, it was film that allowed us to meet, and it was film that, I guess you would say, that brought us together. But, you know, that only goes so far. It was really Rob's kindness and loving nature. He could keep the film, and I could keep my film separately, but it, it's really, uh, you have to go beyond film. <laughs> for a successful marriage and personality and the goodness of people. That's what brings you together. We uh, learned early on that we were not always going to agree on mm -hmm. films that we went to see together. And we didn't want that to spoil a beautiful relationship. 
so we just decided very, very early on before we were married uh, that he could have his opinion, I could have my opinion, and it really didn't matter at all. And we could talk it through or we could just be quiet about it and move on. Had to be secondary. Well, well, Rob was a wonderful guy, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about his career later. And, you know, all these years later, there is no other biography that has come out after years about Matthau. I believe it was in your book that I read that Walter Matthau and Ira Burkow were working on an autobiography, and I guess that never came to pass. Do you know any more about that? No, I don't. Now that you mention it, I kind of remember hearing about it, but I I don't think it ever happened. I don't know. Well, we're lucky to have your book. And again, before we're done, I'm going to mention again your commentaries on WAMC, and I hope people will listen to those. And Audrey, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about Walter Matthau and also about uh, Rob Edelman. Oh, Morris, it's just a pleasure, really. Thank you so much. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. On April 10, 1967, the 39th Annual Academy Awards took place at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. When the time came to present the award for Best Supporting Actor, the announced nominees were Mako for The Sand Pebbles, James Mason for Georgie Girl, Walter Matthau for The Fortune Cookie, George Siegel for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Robert Shaw for A Man for All Seasons. And the Oscar went to Walter Matthau. Matthau was not quite six months short of his 47th birthday. About 13 months later, the film version of The Odd Couple, starring Matthau and Jack Lemmon, reteaming Matthau and Lemmon after the success of The Fortune Cookie, had its big screen premiere. After The Odd Couple, Matthau made six consecutive comedies, followed by a pair of comedy dramas in Koch, directed by Lemmon, and Matthau's second Oscar-nominated performance, and Pete and Tilly, pairing Matthau with Carol Burnett. Next up were three consecutive dramas and at least two of Matthau's best films. First, he had the title role in Charlie Varick, The Last of the Independents. Next, he was Jake Martin in The Laughing Policeman, and then he was Lieutenant Zachary Garber in The Taking of Pelham 123. Charlie Varick was directed by Don Siegel with a screenplay by Howard Rodman and Dean Reisner based on a novel by John Rhys. The Taking of Pelham 123 was directed by Joseph Sargent and starred Matthau, Robert Shaw, Martin Balsam, and Hector Elizondo, leading a great cast of character actors. It was remade as a TV movie in 1998 and then returned to the big screen, much differently, in 2009 directed by Tony Scott, with Denzel Washington in the Matthau role and John Travolta in the Robert Shaw role. Every film Matthau made from the front page in 1974 
Up to Movers and Shakers in 1985 was a comedy. I'll turn again to the Leonard Malton guide for his films, Matthau's films. So far, my movie taste has jived well with the Malton ratings. Until Movers and Shakers. In this period, Malton's book rates 1978's House Calls as the best of the Mathau films with three and a half stars. It was one of two wonderful movies he made with Glenda Jackson. The other was Hopscotch from 1980. Malton's book gives that one three stars along with two of my other favorites, The Sunshine Boys and The Bad News Bears, and one more Neil Simon film, California Suite, and two more Billy Wilder films, The Front Page and Wilder's last film, Buddy Buddy. Both of those with Jack Lemmon. Then there are Casey's Shadow and First Monday in October, getting two and a half stars, followed by Little Miss Marker, I Ought to Be in Pictures, another Neil Simon story, and The Survivors. Then comes Movers and Shakers at one and a half stars. Movers and Shakers was written by Charles Grodin, and Grodin devotes a significant portion of his first biography it would be so nice if you weren't here, to the creation of the film. The story of the creation of the film, I'm sure some people will feel is more entertaining than the film itself. Suffice to say, it's a favorite of mine. In fact, I have sometimes called it my favorite film. Matthau plays Joe Mulholland, a film executive who was mentored by an older film executive, played in the film by Vincent Gardenia. And Matthau, his, uh, Mulholland, has had a very successful career making sequels and blockbusters and, and movies successful financially, but maybe not as rewarding aesthetically. As his mentor is ill, dying, he presents Joe Mulholland with love and sex. It's a sex manual. The Vincent Gardenia character says, get the rights. It's all in those words, love and sex. The book is a tremendous bestseller because people are interested in those words, love and sex. Buy the rights, make the movie. Make something that's about something. The real-life backstory, as Grodin tells it in his book, is that at one time, one of the studios bought the rights to the sex manual, The Joy of Sex. There was no movie, but they liked the title. They thought the title was very commercial. At one point, if I recall the story correctly, Groden was asked if he could turn this into something. So years later, he comes back with this screenplay that eventually had the title of Movers and Shakers. It had other titles as it went through production. And I suppose it's kind of a slap in the face at Hollywood and the way Hollywood does some of the things that it does and the movie industry does some of the things that it does. Not always popular with the film industry, but he put together a wonderful cast with himself, Matthau, Gardenia, Gilda Radner, Tyne Daly, Steve Martin has a cameo appearance, Penny Marshall has a cameo appearance, Joe Mantell is in there nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for the film Marty. Joe Mantell also delivers the end line in Chinatown 
Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. All-star cast, what I think is a pretty good story. Production values, eh. For a Hollywood film, a relatively small budget. And on a pretty quick timeline, and that certainly can cause the cutting of corners. But the final product to me is a wonderful story about somebody who is trying to do something that's about something. Both the Walter Matthau character, the Joe Mulholland in the film, and the Charles Grodin character who is brought in to write the screenplay. The film did not do well. Again, if you take the time to read Grodin's book, It Would Be So Nice If You Weren't Here, there's then an entire story after the film was finished of the studio not promoting it, not putting it on DVD, for instance, the things that might have helped it recoup the cost of the film or better recoup the cost of the film, and the kind of things that might have had people give it a second notice. So I'm inclined to say judge for yourself, but you can't really do that because the film has never yet been given a commercial release on DVD or Blu-ray. You may find it on television if you have the right movies package and can look at it. There are about 18 more films after Movers and Shakers, Walter Matthau films, including both the Grumpy Old Men films. Two films that really gave Matthau and Jack Lemmon great material again and two good movies for them late in their careers to expose them to uh, a younger audience while continuing to entertain the older audience, people like me, that had grown up with them. Most of those films were after Matthau had turned 70 years old. And at least five, if I counted correctly, were with Jack Lemmon. And four or five were with his son, Charlie. If you rely on IMDb and just look at his list of 107 acting credits, you'll miss out on Walter Matthau's appearance in the documentary, The Life and Times of Hank Greenberg. It's an excellent documentary about Greenberg. And as Matthau fits in, the gist of the story is that Greenberg, besides being a baseball legend, was an avid tennis player and belonged to a tennis club in Beverly Hills. And Matthau had no particular interest in tennis, but he joined the club so he could get access to Hank Greenberg and talk to him about baseball. When Matthau would have been a teenager, Greenberg was the Jewish sports superstar. Big, powerful, handsome, everything you want in a superstar. And a great role model to young Jewish kids like Walter Matthau. And certainly had an impact on Matthau at that time in his life and going forward. I've just skimmed the surface of the life and career of Walter Matthau. It's what I do. I highly recommend the book Matthau, A Life for a more complete account of his life, including his lifelong struggle with a gambling addiction and other ups and downs of his personal life. Let me tell you a bit more about the book's co-author, Rob Edelman. At the Society for American Baseball Research website, 
There's a brief biography of Rob, and it says in part, Rob Edelman was the preeminent expert on the history of baseball in film and cinema, publishing countless articles and several books on that subject. He was the editor of Sabres from Spring Training to Screen Test, Baseball Players Turned Actors, in 2018, and also wrote Great Baseball Films, published in 1994. Rob and Audrey were married from 1987 until his death in 2019 at age 70. Rob was a longtime contributor to the Leonard Malton movie guides, and if you pick up one of those guides and look at Rob's biography, there are even more facts and figures uh, about his career and his tremendous accomplishments. And none of that really takes in Rob as just a wonderful person who I was very fortunate to know and who I miss quite a bit. Setting aside stage and television, Matthau's film work adds up to one of the great careers in movie history. I venture to say there's something in it for everybody, and if you're at all like me, heaven help you, there are many roles that will give you a great deal of enjoyment. Thanks again to Audrey Kupferberg for joining us to talk about Walter Matthau. If you visit Audrey's page at wamc.org, you'll not only find links to her commentaries, but you'll also find her conversation with Jackie Orchard on the WAMC program 51%. It's an entertaining look at Audrey's long career in film preservation and scholarship, and I highly recommend it. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwin Company.